Hey, how's everybody doing today? This is another installment of the Core Values Podcast. And today we have a very, very special guest today. We have someone who has done both a lot in the military and also has taken that and bridged that gap into her civilian occupation now. And she just continues to help everybody that she touches, literally, and their lives. And, you know, I'm just very grateful to have somebody of your caliber on my show today. So no further ado, if you could introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. I'm Harazel Stazuski. Um, geez, let's see, where do we start? So I'm about to retire from 20 years in the Air Force, eight years active duty, and remaining has been in the reserves here at McDill Air Force Base. Um, when I left active duty, I transitioned into the civilian life as a personal trainer and then massage therapist. And then I've been a massage therapist for about eight years now. I tried telling you, I tried telling you, but she's, she's a spectacular woman. So what I like to do is I like to start with kind of just the very beginning. What was it like for you growing up? Also, what was it like, um, kind of in society at that time? what their view of what the military was. And then kind of from there, we'll transition a little bit more. But if you could just start from the very beginning, kind of what was it like Boy, for you? Very beginning. Okay. So I am adopted within my family. So my birth mother gave me to her oldest sister who married a U.S. Navy corpsman um, sometime in the 80s when I was adopted. It was about between two and four years old. Uh, paperwork took a couple years to accomplish. Um, after the Philippines, uh, my dad uh, was stationed in uh, in Japan at Kadena, and that was his last duty station. And when he left there, he retired in Maine. Um, so I grew up in Gardner, West Gardner, Maine, um, and I started kindergarten there. Uh, I was still speaking my language when I started kindergarten. I uh, apparently had uh, report cards that said, Herzl's doing well with her classmates. She's trying not to speak her native language as often. I'm speaking English more. What is your uh, native language? Uh, so it would be Tagalog. I'm Filipino. Yeah. Uh. So, uh, yeah, I grew up in a mostly Caucasian dominant School, Family, everything. Town, mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, let's see here. Yeah, all the way through graduating high school, I was there. Wow. Um, you want to go through the family well, yeah. dynamics? So, no, I would, I, I would like to know just kind of what the view of the military was, both in your family and society. Oh, so it was like the family business, you know. So it was yeah. very normalized for me. Um my dad retired when I was in kindergarten. Uh, my brother, he was more involved with, you know, seeing our dad in uniform. And, you know, I wasn't. I was towards the end of his um, career. So I just remember my dad retiring. And then I started school and he went to work with a blazer, a briefcase, you know. Um, but, you know, like I said, it was a family business. So it wasn't weird. It was, a, it was an option. Like you could do that when you get older. You know, was it kind of promoted? Promoted in the family. Um, I mean, it was just an option. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
So it, it was never like, uh, it was never a thought just like, oh, go in the military. Like, oh, that's scary. Or, oh, that's a big deal. Like, no, you just do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I did one year of college and then I was like, ah, just, that didn't work out very well. So let's just go in the military. <laughs> but that's the thing is that there, everybody, like there are options. Mm -hmm. You don't just have to go to school. You don't just have to be a tradesman. Mm -hmm. Like you can do almost anything you want yeah. in the military. Mm -hmm. Um. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just so crazy because a lot of people just don't have that option behind them. Mm -hmm. So if you could kind of tell us what was it like, uh, once you did join the military, you made that decision. What was that like? Oh, so let's start with how we made that decision. Um, I did two semesters in college and didn't go as planned. My brother, my cousin, Chris, my brother's Jason, uh, we were all sitting around the pool and, you know, forecasting our future, like, you know, college didn't work. My brother's like, yeah, me neither. My cousin was working and he wasn't, I think he was in telecommunications or something or telemarketing rather. He's like, yeah, it's not working out for me either. So we all made an agreement poolside in Pensacola. We're like, yeah, let's just join the military. So that was May of 20 of 2002. That's my good. cousin went in first, then my brother, and then... I went in February of '03, so yeah, so good structure that, in the military. That's yeah. how we went in. It was just like, ah, it's time. Wow. <laughs> so to join in that type of collective, like, what? So it must have been like a big rallying appreciation for the family. Like, we have all these representatives now. Mm -hmm. You know, we can. You know, it's families get very, very enthusiastic when people join the military. Oh yeah, yeah. And a lot of people don't know, like, it's it's a unification for some families. It's like, okay, well, this is the one that's really going to make a change. Mm -hmm. And this is the, this, this is the, the, the sibling or the, the son or daughter yeah. that is going to make the change. And yeah, it's just kind of nice that you know that there's always going to be people that are supporting you at least internally mm -hmm. on your decisions. Yeah. So my dad was Navy. Um, my uncle, my cousin's dad was Navy retired both. Um, so my dad was 23 years E8 and then my uncle was 25 years E9. Um, I have like my grandfather in Chicago. He was, you know, World War II. I have family in the Philippines that's military. Um, my brother ended up going army at that time. Um, but he, he went into the Marines a few years prior, um, got out and took a break. He went army. Uh, and my cousin and myself went air force. What made you choose the Air Force? Okay, funny story. My dad, he says, you know, because I was all about the Marines. I was like, I'm going to be a Marine. My childhood was in such a way that I just wanted to get away, if you get my drift. I get it. So I was like, you know what? You know, like, I just, F this, I'm going to go do me. And like, you know, my mom was a hard ass. And so, you know, I kind of adopted some of that energy. And, um, it didn't scare me. Being a Marine didn't scare me. And then my dad was like, what's your goals? Why do you, no, you don't need to go there. Just, just go in the Air Force. I'm like, why? He's like, well, you know, from the times that I visited Air Force bases, they have good chow, great golf courses, and amazing bowling alleys. So my career started off with great golf courses and Bowling alleys. They, they were better there. So uh, 
my dad contact contacted a family friend. He was like two steps above recruiting. He's like, Harrison, what what kind of job do you want? And um, I was like, anything but medical. I didn't want to be that close to people's lives, you know. I just didn't want to. So he comes back and he's like, oh, I got you something. He gives me the paper. It says aerospace medical technician in the long paragraph. And I read it and I was like, this is medical. He's like, I know, I know, but think about it. Like, if, in case it doesn't work out, you got a job. You're certified. You know, you're going to be an EMT. I was like, I told you, anything but medical. So I went with it because, you know, they know stuff. So I joined um, uh, aerospace medical technician. So you're a licensed EMT. And um, yeah. Wow. So when you first got in, mm -hmm. what was it like when you first, when you, got shipped out and really got your first you know taste of the military because yeah. you you, you kind of were it's the he said she said kind of thing mm -hmm. and then you finally like dip your toes in it what was that like for you okay so um so i told you about my mom <laughs> yeah our household was such a way that you weren't gonna walk out like weak you know what i mean so you might walk out with some baggages right but you know, that's for a later story. <laughs> um, so, you know, went to Portland, Maine, hung out at the hotel, waited to get shipped out. Um, got, boarded the plane. It's all spotty memory. Uh, boarded the plane, got to Texas. Mind you, it's just six weeks. And um, get there. It's the rah, rah, rah. And I'm like, okay, I get that. I was like, it was rah, rah, rah for 18 years of my childhood. So I'm like, okay, uh, this is not real. You can't touch me. <laughs> You know, so it just didn't bother me. I was bothered because it was annoying, but it didn't scare me. And so, you know, did the whole thing. First couple of days is just do what you're told and try not to be highlighted. You know, um, at night, you know, I'm you know braiding my hair. So it's, you just get up and go in the morning. And I'm thinking about it now. It's kind of sad. But back then I was like, I could hear girls crying, like, you know, just the whimpering cry. And I'm like, I was like, it's not bad. It's real, but it's not horrible. Um, but, you know, later on, you know, you grow up and you realize some people just, they come from a different dynamics and they don't know that this exists and what they're, what they joined up for and what they're partaking in. It's, it's more than just, hey, I just signed a job. I'm going to go do this thing. I'm like, yeah, it's every, it's your entire life. You know, you sign that dotted line and it's more, their eyes are opened up. So I just, you know. Six weeks wasn't a big deal. Yeah, just another day. Yeah, another walk down the park. Yeah. Um. So, during those six weeks, could you just kind of tell us time frame wise when did you join? Uh, February of two thousand three. Two thousand three. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, kind of the the, I should say the training. Mm -hmm. It kind of evolved a lot right after nine eleven. Yeah. Were they implementing anything new at that time? That was. Kind of counter or, or a response to 9-11? You know, not that I can think of at the time because I was in it, you know. But I will tell you, um, so my brother was part of the first invasion. And so this is Feb of 03. They invaded, what, a, couple, a month prior or back in December. Um, so at night we would have our, you know, gathering and we would watch the news. So I was like, well, this is different. Never heard anyone talk about this at basic training, you know, so that, or it was either watching the news or we'd hear, hear it over the radio or something like that. 
Um, it, it was a very interesting time to be part of that because it, it just made everything real, real. Like you're joining the military. You're going through basic training right now. Um, we're in an active war. And, you know, at 18, 19, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, um, but I was open. I was just like, well, whatever. I'm here to do work, you know. What was kind of the mission at that time of the military in 2003? Oh, gosh. What, what, what were you getting trained to do is the best way I would ask I mean, question. we're not it's Air Force. We're not technically a fighting force, but we had to be, you know, versed in what we were getting ourselves into. And um, like I said, at night we would gather around. Um, our drill sergeants would tell us how real things are. This is what you signed up for. This is what's currently going on. And you need to prepare yourself because we don't know what's next. Um, we have at the time warrior week, it was one week of, you know, outdoors camping, you know, don't make fun of us now. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, outdoors, no showers, whatever field training. Um, and, you know, understand our, our purpose, our core. You know, we don't, that's what the army's for. That's what the Marine is for. We're not supposed to be outside, right? So, um, you know, it was just being informed. And that's a memory from a long time ago. I don't really, I don't really, yeah. I can't recall. You know, I was just doing what I was told. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I just remember early in the war and just at night, what they were telling us, how real things are and you need to prepare yourself. And so once you got out of the training. Mm hmm you got shipped out into doing the aerospace medical mm -hmm. technician. training technician. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How long was that training and what was that like? Oh boy. Four months, um, at Shepard air force base. And then, um, and then I think it's six weeks or two weeks. Well, you're talking about 20 years uh, ago. I know it's just crazy because <laughs> I was actually stationed at Shepard air force. Oh, base. were you? Yeah. Okay. That's where I did my school. All right. So, yeah, four months there. I took the EMT national test there. Um, and then we went, I went to um, Illinois uh, at Scott Air Force Base for the clinicals. I can't remember if it was two weeks or six weeks. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. It, it, as long as you know mm -hmm. that you went. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's the big thing. Yeah. Um, so after you graduated from school, what was it like getting attached to your first unit? Um, yeah, so I got my assignment and it said Tampa, Florida. And I was like, I knew where Orlando was. I knew where Pensacola was. That's my family. And uh, Jacksonville, Miami. I'm like, Tampa? Where is that? So, and I was asking around, like, where's Tampa? I'm from Maine. I'm like, where's <laughs> where this? And so they were like, oh, that's a good spot. That's a good spot. It's, it's Florida. It's going to be great. And so I get down here, and it's a huge, huge base with lots of important people, you know. Uh, so our function here was uh, very unique, and I enjoyed my time for sure. Um, but yeah, I got here. It was sunny. It was beautiful. And I was like, this is good. <laughs> a little different than Maine. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What was it like when you got deployed? Oh, okay. So this was interesting. Um, the vibe, you know, uh, was like people are shipping out and I, you know, you, I was new, so you had to get trained. So you couldn't just get to your duty station and leave. You know, you had to end process. You're brand new to the military. You had to get everything situated. So it, people weren't really deploying till a good year and a half after we arrived. What um, year would that be? Uh, 0304. 0304. Um, I, my first deployment was 2008. Um, but I remember some of my peers that got onto the duty station with me 
within six months to a year. They were deploying in 05. Um, so I didn't make that cut, if you will. There was other people higher ranking, you know, E3, E4. Um, and so they went, and at the time, the deployment was to Balad. Um, so they came back, and they came back different. That was interesting. Um, but when I deployed, it was 2008, and I went to Afghanistan. Yeah. So you had a whole four years into that. So like you kind of got into, mm -hmm. you know, used to the Air Force life. You're yeah. in Tampa. Mm -hmm. You're a bunch, around a bunch of officers all the time. And, mm -hmm. um, what made you kind of want to do that reenlistment? Did you do a four-year or six-year contract? Um, I always did four years. So I did two four-year contracts and then went into the reserve. Um, so 2008 would have been on the tail end of your first contract? Mm -hmm. okay. At that point, I had tested for E5. I'd made it. I wasn't wearing it. Excuse me. Um, I put on E5 out in the field in Afghanistan. Um, and then when I, you know, was deployed, I was like, I could do this. Like, you're a medic. Like, you want to go do things. It doesn't mean you want to be in a war. You just want to go do things. So being in the rear, you know, um, or back home station doing paperwork, it's just like, it's for the birds, man. You don't want to <laughs> do this. It's like, yeah. So once I got a taste of traveling, I'm like, yeah, I want a TDY all the time. I want to go places. Sorry, uh, TDY for the office. Oh, oh temporary duty station. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it happens over and over and over again. You do maybe a couple months, a year, two years in a place, and then you go TDY to a new mm -hmm. uh, unit. Uh, when you got into, when you got your taste of deployment, mm -hmm. what was it like being introduced to that type of environment when you saw war for the first time? Yeah. Um, so prior to 2008, I think we shipped out in January, February of 08, uh, we went to combat skills training, CST training at Fort Riley in Kansas. That was my first contact training with the Army. And I was like, oh, my God. Sorry. I love all branches. But there's a reason why I love the Air Force. <laughs> so there was a clash there, uh, just difference of mindset and just – our purposes are different, but we had to work together, you know. Um, and, you know, we were a smaller core. There's so many of them. Um, but we had our function, and because we were going to be attached to the Army or other branches, um, we had to be similar to them. We, You know what I mean? So I was a, trained as a backup gunner. Was I going to be a gunner? No. <laughs> but I had to be familiarized with, you know, was it nine different weapons at that time. Um, learn ops the way you know, the army teaches it and because we're going to be attached to them. Um, the purpose wasn't to be doing convoys, but you, we didn't really know our assignment till we got there. So we had to just that the whole six weeks was to be familiarized of what's going on downrange. And what people need to understand is that when shit hits the fan, mm -hmm. it's, you know, next man up. Mm -hmm. Hey, we need you here. We need right. you there. Mm -hmm. I don't care what you've done. Mm -hmm. We are getting contact right now. We mm -hmm. need to move. Right. Um, and the goal is to kind of mitigate the, you know, the problems in that. But, you know, you kind of just have to get the job done. Yeah. So to add to that, you know, after that training, we went back home, hung out with our family for Christmas, and then we shipped out after that. Uh, I don't even know how many ports we went into, but took us forever to get to Afghanistan. We arrived and before arriving, just flying to different airports and landing, it was just like, you're, you're with your brothers and sisters, you're goofing off, you're getting your last, you know, 
half fake drinking. <laughs> I yeah. think we stuff in Germany. Um, and it's like, it doesn't hit you till you land, you know, and then you get pallets of hundreds of bags and you're offloading your stuff. Um, where were we? We were Camp Phoenix, um, in Kabul, um, that has since dismantled. Um, we landed there and it was winter, so it was pretty quiet, you know, apparently even the Afghanis or the, uh, the bad guys don't want to dig through snow to plant bombs and stuff. So it was quiet. Yeah. Um, so it's not like we landed and, you know, we we're getting shot at or anything like that. Um, but to see a new environment, it just hits you and you're just like, whoa. And then you're taking a bus to our next base and you're seeing just garbage everywhere. You're seeing the disparity of the country and goats everywhere. And just like, why do people live like this? I'm like, <laughs> you know, and um, you get checked in, get your bunk and get your assignments and then it's business as usual, you know? You're just, in, you're just not in the States. You're just now in a new country. Do your thing, right? So I acclimated quickly, I guess. Um, I think most people did. Uh, it was when we started convoying. That was a little different. It's kind of getting your... Mm. Convoys is like you're actually going out and... Yes. You're, oh. you, you take away your, you know, your veil of security. Mm-hmm. And you're actually in the enemy's territory. Yeah. And it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't our primary purpose as Air Force personnel. Um, we were medics. And so when we got our assignment at Camp Phoenix, my assignment was to go a little bit more downrange at a smaller camp. And it was, a, I think, a four-man team. Yeah. So my provider, uh, my PA, another senior medic, and then myself. And then my master sergeant, he would come and go. Um, so he wasn't always in the picture. He was probably at Camp Phoenix. But, um, yeah, so a three-man team to stand up the clinic. And um, we would be, um, who was it? It's a small camp. So we had Army, Marine, um, and then contractors there. Just, it was small. It was a couple hundred people. So we didn't have much to do there. And to be honest, after a month being there, we had cabin fever, like, not that we want to go out there, bro. What can we do? They're like, well, we got an assignment. We got to go here and there. Okay, cool. You know? And then it's like, it's a gamble. It's like, what does this mean? You know? So. And so because you're out there and you're on this, you know, forward operating base, mm-hmm. you did you get any exposure to the gravity of the war? No. Um no. Like, like did you we know, hear bombs and gunfire and stuff like that? Yeah, and then you know, you get your prior to your convoy, you get a meeting, see yeah. what the latest information is. Um and there was always activity. Um and it was always we needed to know what we needed to know in the direction to where we we're going. So um there was always activity, but thankfully where we were going, whatever convoy I was on, we never had contact. And um and like I said, our purpose was for assistance, you know. We were allowed to uh, convoy. We had some uh, army medics cover our clinic. You know, at first it, the convoy was just going back to Phoenix, get medical supplies, come back. Um, we had some other non-medical personnel that were Air Force. They would they would drive out to Jalalabad or Abad and um, come back, um, but their function was like comms or stuff like that. So um, they had you know, experience with contact because it's a hotbed out there at the time, you know? So it was to say you went there and came back alive 
was a big deal, you know. And how long were you out there for? Six months. Six months. Mm -hmm. That's the way the Air Force operates. And then you were in active duty for eight years. Yes. So this is at the tail end of your first deployment. I mean, your first enlistment. And then Mm -hmm. you brought it back. So when you got back, Mm -hmm. what did you take from your deployment? Like what, what residual effects did you kind of have to deal with? Um, so I stayed busy. Uh, so I didn't really feel the facts until months later. Uh, I came back. I had to go to, um, airman leadership school, which is because I put E5 out there. I had to go to my NCO class. Right. So I came home, saw my family and went back, went back to work, went back to my next assignment, you know? Um, some people might not know what NCO is. Oh, non-commissioned officer. So I wear the rank on my sleeve, you know, versus my lapel. Um, and yeah, so it was one thing after another. So I, you know what I'm saying? So it, it's an assignment. You just do your job. Yeah. <laughs> so from sitting here right now, how did I feel? I didn't, I don't recall anything like coming back to decompress. Like, wow, that was a whirlwind. You know, it was, it was an experience for sure. Um, but I don't know if that's because of my ability to compartmentalize, <laughs> uh, some people yeah. don't have that gift. Yeah. And it's very difficult for them to overcome mm-hmm. that type of trauma. Right. And that's the thing. It didn't get me then. It got me later. Yeah. And so um, at the time I was 25. And if you don't know, growing up, <laughs> getting your 30s, things start to unravel and you don't know where it comes from. Um, so um, I went to NCO class for, I don't know how long that is, six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> um. And it was September. I got it. This is um, this is when things changed for me. Mm-hmm. Um, September. I uh, got a call from my brother from another mother, a Navy corpsman, little guy. Um, we were there together for three months. He arrived three months after my arrival, and um, so we were like, we were arm in arm. The whole time we'd go to chow together, we'd go work out together, we'd have Bible study together. Um, and so I've already come back home. He's Navy, so his assignment, I think they were out there for nine months. Um, I get a call on the 6th of September, he's um, having a conversation with me, you know, updating me on what's going on. He's happy, he's chipper, can't wait to come home so we can go and do things. Him and I were supposed to travel the world, meet each other's families, go on cruises. And um, September 9th, um, I get a phone call from a fellow um, Air Force buddy that was stationed in Arizona. He said, hey, I just want to let you know our friend passed away. Uh, Yeah, that one. That hit me. I was like, everything kind of got fuzzy. I didn't black out, but it got fuzzy. And you know that like white noise? Yeah. Did you just like, like you're. You can't feel your body. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a numb yeah. radiation. And I was like, what? And I walked away. At the time, I got the news in the parking lot at the BX. I walked in, saw my mom. She was down there visiting to come to my NCO graduation. Um, and she sees me. She's like, oh, my God. Are what? Are you okay? What happened? And I just, I didn't cry. I don't think I cried. I blankly just... Uh, Told her, like, hey, my friend died. And she gave me a hug, and I, w- I was just still numb. It hit me the next day. So, How did it hit you? 
Um, oh, Jesus. Okay, so I was supposed to speak at my graduation. Um, my assignment was to talk about a fellow um, Medal of Honor recipient, and I was writing up my story, you know, how I was going to speak, and then the body is so weird. Um, so the brain-body connection, I'm, ri I'm writing this out on the computer, and I'm writing this recipient of the Medal of Honor, I, I forget his name, but the way he dies is similar to how my friend dies. Like, he, he's on the plane, he jumps on, you know, uh, mortar or whatever, um, and he saves everybody, right? Yeah. Um, my friend had died um, from an IED, from two anti-tank landmines, so there's nothing left with that. Um, so that clicked in my brain, and I, everything started to go numb. And that was basically my first experience of having a panic attack. And so I was 25 years old, experienced a panic attack. I didn't even know what to expect. Uh, my limbs went numb. My jaw went numb, kind of like you go to the dentist and they would numb up your face. <laughs> Everything, my lips, I couldn't feel anything. So I went outside and I was screaming because I, I, I didn't like that I could not control my body. And I started kicking the lampposts. I started kicking people's car tires because I wanted to feel because I was it was out of control and I was just like lost it. And so had to tell my master sergeant, like, I can't talk tomorrow. <laughs> got that. He got that filled in, taken care of. Um, the next day at graduation, I didn't know I was still feeling effects. Um, because I went from my deployment straight into NCO school, I didn't really see a lot of my leadership back in the hospital. So at graduation, I saw some of my leadership, my supervisor, it was my supervisor for years. Um, I forgot his name. I forgot my commander's name. I forgot when someone asked me, hey, how was things? They're, they're asking me about the school. How was your six-week experience? I was like, I thought they were talking about Afghanistan. So I started talking about Afghanistan. They're like, no, 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 I'm talking about school. You're graduating. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I was out of it. I couldn't. And then from then on, for probably months, I couldn't capture people's names. I couldn't remember people's names. So my brain went berserk. That was, looking back, that was my first experience with PTSD. Was that terrifying to you? A little bit. It was very frustrating. Because <laughs> you're losing control. Like, you know, I have a, this face that looks, you know, represented like I'm put together. You know, my uniform's pressed. And then I can't even find my words. I don't know people's names. I don't, their rank and everything. I had, I had to describe what they look like and where they work. Wow. That was very frustrating. <laughs> And that's, that's the effects of the, the, the brain. Mm -hmm. There's issues that are chemical imbalances that happen in the brain. You don't know what happens mm -hmm. until it's too late. Yeah. Um, so you're still in at this moment. So what, what kind of treatments were you doing to kind of figure, figure out what's going on and try and make yourself better? Oh, well, the Air Force and the military has to offer mental health, <laughs> life skills. Well, yeah, that's fine. I can talk. You know, I don't care. Um, ah, that's all fuzzy memories, but I know I did it because, you know, you kind of have to, if you're, you're not able to do your job, you got to do the next thing, which is go get remediation of some sort. Um, take time off, go get counseling, um, see the chaplain, things like that. I did all the things. Um, but that didn't take away the effects of my memory. You know what I mean? Um, and then 
I can't tell you all the events, but I just remember when I would have the event that would overwhelm me, the symptoms of um, panic and anxiety, I would just get a little bit, just enough to overwhelm my body. And I was like, I don't like this. But that took me out. That took me out. Oof. A good year. Uh, and I was doing all the things. I was going to counseling. I probably started medication. Um, but PTSD is weird. <laughs> How, how how soon were you on medication once you joined the military? Was it kind of immediate or did you... When I took medications for the military? Well, when they started prescribing you medications. Not necessarily taking them. Oh, probably. That was four years in. Four years in. Yeah, so my yeah. deployment was my fourth, fifth year. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Oh, it's all hazy right now. <laughs> wow. Uh, but that was a weird experience. Like, I never experienced or have been told what a panic or anxiety attack is or what PTSD was, you know? I, for me, I, it would be terrifying. Obviously I felt my own versions of it, mm -hmm. but not while I was still in, mm -hmm. I had gotten out and that's when I dealt with it. Yeah. But when I'm still in, it's, you have to compose yourself for everyone around you and the people underneath you. And, mm -hmm. uh, it's, and you also have to have a command presence. Mm -hmm. And so once you, you just pinned E5 and now you're in and you're dealing with all these emotions and everything. What's your personal like life life like if you're dealing with all this internally? Oh, you go to work, can't wait to get off. You go home, get food, crash on the couch, wake up in your uniform, take a shower, put on another uniform, go to work. <laughs> yeah. Do that all over again. Um, I'm naturally an introvert, so I'm okay just going home. <laughs> yeah. Doing my thing, you know, laying low. Um, but yeah, after that, um, I ended up getting reclassed and so I had to go to IDMT school and I was like, so before my deployment, so what's, what's IDMT independent duty corpsman. Oh shoot. Independent duty technician. Sorry. Navy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Independent duty technician. And, um, so it's just a higher echelon than a, uh, medic air force medic. Um, that type of individual you could put in the middle of nowhere and they are the doctor, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah. So like I said, I came home from deployment, went to NCO school. My friend passed away. That was an event in itself. A couple months later, I'm getting reclassed. I'm going, doing the next thing. So, um, you know, taking time to take care of myself and understand what I was experiencing. You just went with it. I had a job to do, you know? So, um, went to Texas. I attempted to become an IDMT. <laughs> um, at the time I did not know, um, I had a little bit of cognitive, cognitive, cognitive disabilities later on, like late thirties, find out I'm like dyslexic and ADHD. Um, but who knows that could have stemmed from PTSD. You know what I mean? Um, so I went to training. I went through one week washed out. So my, uh, doing the physical exam portion, I was great. I was like nineties, but then the test taking, that was bombed in like a 50, 55. I, I took it again the next day and got like a 65. So it wasn't, you know, a competence issue. It was just test taking and I was just not good at that. And the time restriction time frame. Oh yeah. You yeah. want us to know all this stuff in 13 weeks yeah. and put you out in the field. Right. And so I was like, that's not how my brain works. And uh, so I washed out, came back to my original job. And uh, but a year prior, 
before I got deployed, I had put in um, to be a flight medic. I went to, you know, got my flight physical done. I was good to go. Then I got deployed. So, you know, flash forward a year, they're reassigning me to be IDMT. I'm like, do you not see my package? I want to be a flight medic. And, you know, uh, they're like, no, we need IDMT. So you're going there. And I'm like, I'm going to bomb out. I promise you. <laughs> so when I, to give you some context, when I went to um, school after basic training, I did really well in class, like 80s and 90s. But my national certification, I got like a 72. So I knew at that point that my, I just don't do well with test taking. But I, I, you know, I can understand the material, but just don't test me. <laughs> it's just amazing how you have to get into your 20s to find mm -hmm. out that you have that issue. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's very frustrating because everything everything's so expected from you. Yeah. And you're like, I'm trying my hardest. Mm -hmm. I just can't do it. Yeah. But they train you with other skill sets and you yes. perform in that, you know, capacity. And you, you know, you're a rock star over there. And I, I work hands-on very well. So my job was very hands-on. So I excelled at that. And so it hid. You didn't come out. <laughs> you didn't, I didn't notice any of those disabilities, if you will, until years later. When did you kind of get the feeling like, oh, I think I'm kind of done with the active duty side. I'm going to start moving towards getting into the civilian side. Um, it was after my second deployment. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so... Which was fine. Well, let's, let's rewind. What's yeah. the, what, what was the second deployment like? Second deployment. Yeah, tell me that one. All right. The, so, good, the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was easy. I we went to Africa. <laughs> so the assignment was... Uh, okay. The assignment was two medics need a report to DROC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, and to assist special forces. In what capacity, I don't remember the writing, but we were supposed to support whatever operations was happening at that time. Um, this is where I have internal jokes. I'll tell you later. So two medics were ordered from higher up, right? So myself and my girlfriend, Nikki, are tagged. We start out processing, and we it has to be expedited because they need, they need two medics. Um, so my clinic had never deployed personnel from the med group over to Africa. We, I worked in the deployment clinic, so I deployed people all the time, but our hospital had not deployed our own people there. So we had to figure stuff out. We were calling DC, expediting passports. And if you've ever been deployed, there's a packet of papers that you had to get through, lots of signatures, lots of hoops you had to go through. Um, we did that all on our own. We did a lot of hard work. Some, sometimes we were getting told that, you know, deployment was going to get pulled. And then we're like, no, we're, we've done all this work. I was like, are you sure? Uh, long story short, we get there. Uh, we land in Djibouti, Horn of Africa. You know, it's just me and she's now my best friend. But so it's me and Nikki. She's an IDMT actually at this time. And uh, we meet our counterparts. Um, it was a PA there, um, uh, physician assistant from another base. And then, yeah, sorry, memories. Um, another PA from another part of Florida was there. So we meet our, our team there and we're all from all over the United States. And, um, the PA, the female PA, she calls downrange to the Congo and says, Hey, we got your girls. 
You're saying that to a bunch of special forces. We got your girls. What do you mean? You ordered two medics, right? And then they're like, yeah, yeah, send them. And, um, you know, I don't, I wasn't there for the conversation. I didn't have that conversation. And, you know, you have female accommodations. Like female accommodations. No, they're at this point, they're like refurbishing a blown out building, you know? Like, we don't have female accommodations. What do you mean? They're like, well, your medics are female. And so this is the joke I'm saying. Like, medics come in female form. (laughs) I'm like, army. You know, I'm just, you know, you got to poke fun. And I'm like, and in that moment, within that 30 minutes, they were like, well, we can't use them. We were about to get sent home. We were like, no, you're not sending us home. It took us, you know, X, Y, Z to get here. I was like, find us a job. (laughs) We will make a job. So, um, we did find ourselves a job. <laughs> we, uh, in a roundabout way, uh, became medical logistics for, um, uh, geographically located other personnel, medics, you know, that were throughout Africa. And they were like, yeah, that's a legit job. We can stand that up. Right. So we made ourselves a job, <laughs> stood up a clinic and that was what we did. Um, and then, Did you treat anybody in that clinic? Yeah. Okay. So at Camp Djibouti, um, no, Camp Lemonnière. Sorry. Djibouti is the country. Camp Lemonnière is a Navy base. And then uh, there's a fence with a special lock. And that's the other side. That's where special operations reside. We were behind the fence. We were behind the fancy fence, right? And so the things that go on beyond that, T-shirt, shorts, and (laughs) flip-flops. We were not in uniform 24-7. Um, everyone else on Camp Lemonier, yes, they were. And so it was like, oh, God, what is that like? We were so spoiled. <laughs> so we would literally sh- wake up 8 o'clock, show up to work 8.30. We've already gotten chow, do some work for a few hours, and then we're in flip-flops by like 2 o'clock. We're going to the gym. It was freedom. And then... um our providers, our PAs, they had, they were privy to information. They would go to the, you know, higher up meetings or whatever. Um, and they got an assignment and they said, Hey, you want to, you want to go on this assignment? I'm like, where are we going? And it was, one was Mauritania, one was Burkina Faso. And, uh, to travel throughout Africa, you had to have a visa. So, they said, okay, cool. So if you want to go, we could use some extra hands to do, you know, medical stuff. And um, we were standing up medical clinics and letting locals um, get treated by us. So they're like, okay, so we got to get visas. We either got to go back to D.C. or we got to go to Paris. Like, we're going to go to Paris. Like, we don't need to go pack over the pond. Just let's go to Paris. So we got like five tickets to Paris, myself and my leadership go, five ladies, I think it was. We went to Paris for five days. And it was a shame because the first two days, the place we had to go wasn't open. So we were like walking around Paris, going to the museum, cemeteries, just sightseeing. Sounds terrible. It was a terrible deployment, (laughs) I tell you. So um, yeah. Oh, we go back full circle. You know, Paris is great and all. Uh, we did our assignments in Mauritania, Mauritania Burkina Faso. Um, we go to DROC. We go to the Congo the last seven weeks of our six-month deployment. They finally have female, female accommodations. So we actually fulfill our deployment. 
We go to D-Rock. We get there. We're basically doing admin. We're doing admin. That's what they needed you for? I don't know what they needed us for, oh. but they made At us- At that time. Uh, you know, and the rules was special forces were not allowed to associate with us, myself and my friend Nikki. Um, so that was the deal. Yeah. <laughs> we're here for help. That's the female accommodation. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we did run a clinic there. And, um, but again- Uniform for a few hours, and then, uh, you know, we're flip-flops, t-shirt, shorts for the rest of the day. Don't so, tell anybody. Sounds so terrible. It was a terrible thing. But oh. th- we did work. We did work. We were um, helping assist uh, Congolese Army to do medical things. And, exactly. And, yeah. the, and the, the thing about medicine is it's not about the amount of time that you do it. It's the <laughs> knowledge that you know what you're doing when you yeah. need to do it. Right. Yeah. That's the thing. So once you get the knowledge, you're like, okay, well. Mm-hmm. I already know what to do. Yeah. If you're not bringing it to me, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> right. So, and I mean, special forces had their assignment. They were re- working with the Congolese. And um, so we would just hung out. Uh, what is it? Uh, I can't forget. I don't remember the codes. Yeah. Is it Deltas? Those the Delta medics? Codes? I believe so. I mean, I was in the Marine Corps, so I'm, I'm <laughs> But I'm uh, So we'd hang out with him. Uh, he would be teaching and holding classes, how to do basic medical like blood pressure, NG yeah. tube, you know, tourniquets, things like that. Um, but there was a, you know, language barrier. So I did take two years of French. The local language was French, um, Swahili. Oh, I can't think of the other language. But, you know, you just know the basic words or you use Google Translate. <laughs> so how many languages do you know? You just named no, like no, no. Like, I don't know them oh. anymore. <laughs> I'm just saying. So the cool part. You know, kids, stay in school. Your two years of random language that you take, you never know. You might need it in 10 years. <laughs> you might be getting shipped out to France to get a visa. <laughs> yeah, I knew enough to introduce myself and order my dinner. <laughs> hey, as long as you can do that, I think you can survive. Yes, yeah. As long as you can order yourself food. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, like I said, we, for that deployment, we were basically admin, you know, awards and decks for the SF guys. Someone's got to do it, you know, and the yeah. E8s didn't want to do it all. <laughs> um, there's lots of little stories in there, but, oh, you know, for another time. Um, and I'd have to bring on Nikki. She knows more. She remembers a lot more. Oh, she could fill in all those little blanks. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You don't Her, remember that? You do? Yeah. We mostly laughed. We laughed and laughed. Just so many things. Um, so we finished up that assignment, and I was home back, you know, stateside. Six months, and that's when I got out. That's when you got out. Mm-hmm. Well, you kind of accomplished a lot, you know, in that in your time frame. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it, but I guess in comparison to people that don't join the military, or you know, I like I said, it's a family business, so it's not. You don't see the the impact of no, what you do. You're just like, not. oh, I'm just you know, Herzo. That's just I just did this. I'm just doing things. And then <laughs> just so do my job. When you got when you were when you made your decision that you were going to get out and be a civilian, mm-hmm. what did you kind of prepare yourself to do once you did get out? Um, so at the time, I was married, newly married. I just got out same same month. Got married, and got out. Uh, I was basically depressed for six months. Um, to be a dependent wife and have the freedom to do whatever. I was like, that was actually depressing. I didn't have to report. I didn't know what to do with myself. Might sound strange, but when you are trained to do or to, to operate that way, I mean, I grew up a certain way too. So um, 
And then going into the military kind of just fortified that. And so, yeah, I kind of went into a depression. I was like, I don't, what, what is my purpose? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I didn't ever think I was leaving the military. Um, but I had an opportunity to leave. Um, and so I took it. And um, I ended up going into personal training. I was like, GI Bill. They said to pay for classes. <laughs> so I signed up for a six-month course. It was an in-house, uh, learn how to be a personal trainer. Um, it would have been fine and dandy if had I stayed in Tampa. You know, uh, Tampa is a vain enough city that they want to look good, smell good. You know, um, after I graduated, my spouse at the time got assigned to Texas, Colleen, Texas, everyone. <laughs> so I was not personally training anybody when I got there. No one wanted that stuff. <laughs> they yeah. wanted Shipley Donuts. <laughs> just kidding it's a lovely town um donuts are good um but it was it was a far cry from tampa yeah you know values were different there um and i ended up getting a job at a bodybuilding gym uh field house out in colleen and um i was working the front desk i wasn't performing as a personal trainer but a fellow trainer came up to me who was also an Air Force veteran, he was like, hey, Arizal, have you ever thought about massage therapy? I was like, no. I don't want to touch people. He's like, no, 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 you're, you're a medic. I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't mean I want to touch them. And so, uh, but no. And he was just like talking me up. He's like, yeah, but you're great with people. You're good with your words. You like to take care of people. And you're really great at this, this, and that. So, um, you know, I was a young person, easily manipulated so i went checked out the local massage school and um uh signed up gosh a couple maybe a month later i was in class something like that so um yeah that's the beginning of now but to to always be kind of geared towards um the the medicine side of things Mm -hmm. like you've always been at the very beginning like always medically oriented, mm-hmm. even though from the very get go, you're like, Hey, I don't want to do it. I want to do anything except medicine. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and it goes from, I don't want to do any medicine to now. Well, I don't, well, let, let, let's go into training people. And then from training people, we'll go ahead and get into like, yeah. okay, well now there's alternatives to, to lifting weights. Yeah. Everything doesn't have to be lifting weights or putting, you know, yeah. Well, the premise behind going into personal training is when I left active duty military, all I knew was being EMT. Um, At the time, the information I got about being EMT for Tampa was, you know, more paperwork. Yeah. Uh, When you leave the military with a skill set, it gets broken down in the civilian sector and you need more certification. So you need a certification to give blood. You need a certification to take blood, you know, but in the military... That's all one skill set and you do it, you know, and no one's, you know, no one's uh, looking at certifications because that's just how you're trained. You do everything. And so when I found out I had to have a certification for this, this and that, I was like, no, I don't want to be a medic. (laughs) Um, And also another influence was the PTSD aspect. I just I I didn't think I could do it. I I didn't I did not feel secure in uh, my mental wellness at that time to be that close to a life. And I was kind of afraid that if I saw death, uh, that I would be triggered. And I was like, yeah, you don't, that's not, it would not be responsible of me, of me to go into that field knowing 
there's vulnerability there, you know? Um, so I, I got out and I was like, well, how else can I help people? I'll personally train them. That was cool. That was a cool thought. <laughs> it was. And it's like, nope, you're actually not meant to do that. You're yeah, meant to do this. Nope. Yeah. But it was good. You know, all of the education that I've received, I used my GI bill like five or six times, like four different certifications. It, it has, it's all had a purpose and it's built my career, built my skill set that I have now. Um, so, um, yeah, I didn't do personal training in Texas and I rolled into massage therapy. I, it was like joining the military. It was like, whatever, I'll just do it. I didn't know really what I was getting myself into. Um, in the first week, it all made sense though. Um, watched videos, these really hippie videos of Esalen Institute out in California um, Esalen Institute. Yeah. What yeah. were they teaching about? Um, so they are a facility that does CE training and um, massage and mas like massage therapy oriented um, modalities. Um, you'd have to go to the website. I don't know what else yeah. they do, but they, they hold um, teachings and things like that. So the videos that we watched for the first two weeks of me going into massage therapy school were these videos and I'm watching these videos and it's, it was so hippie in terms of like, there's a table out in the garden. The person on the table has like a hand towel over their glutes and the massage therapist is in a tank top and shorts and there's music like fairy music in the background. It's very whimsical. I don't even know. And I'm like, what? My medic brain was like breaking. I was like, what is the purpose of this? <laughs> Uh, but you know, as the days wore on, education started to sit, seep in and like, okay, mind the muscle, you know, once, um, the instructor started teaching us the biology of the body and its needs and what we're lacking and why massage therapy is important. I was like, oh, okay. And so once I understood that, I was like, I see, okay, okay, I can do this. And, um, uh, I ended up being pretty good at it, like naturally. And so that made it easy for me to stay in that vocation because I would just do stuff. <laughs> We're in school. We work on each other and I would just do things, you know, do a long glide or whatever. And it just um, felt good. Right. And so when you're new to that modality, to that trade, some people are just like hiccuping. They're just like, is this okay? Is that too much? And I just had a natural talent for it. So that was helpful. So in in, in this new field, mm -hmm. what have you seen kind of the correlation with veterans? Do you see veterans that are going seeking out, you know, this type of therapy? Or do you see it that that's a need that hasn't been met yet? Oh, definitely a need that hasn't been met yet. And it's um, the, the definition of massage therapy really needs to be in a sense, redefined in our Western culture. Um, touch therapy on the other side of the world is very common. It is the first medicine for some countries, you know. Um, but over here, our first medicine is pharmacology, you know. And um, uh, so for us as veterans, we it needs to be said in such a way of, how we can affect your biology, how we can affect your nervous system, you know. Um, and it's more than K2 
candles and the warm table and aromatherapy, you know, um, what I currently do is a sense functional, it's functional massage therapy. You know, I do work in a spa, but because of my skill set, um, I treat the body and make corrections. Um, and people walk away feeling way better, you know, than when they came in. And that's in a sense, unheard of for common people getting massage therapy. A lot of what I hear is like, oh my God, I've never felt that before. Or, oh my God, I've had this pain for X amount of years and I feel so much better. Um, people don't understand, you know, the medicine behind massage therapy because our commercials say it needs to look like this, you know, with um, low lights and, you know, flowing water, like mimosas and stuff. And like, it has its place. I'm not going to say it's not needed. But we also need to put in the spotlight, in a sense, of functional massage therapy. And, you you know, people are familiar with massage. I mean, sorry, with um, sports therapy. But that is kind of a turnoff because you think you have to be an athlete to get sports massage. Or the the notion that sports massage is going to hurt. You know, and people don't want that. No. <laughs> you know, um, but you can deliver massage in such a way that... Um, it doesn't have to be over the top painful, you know. You coach your patient or your guest on the table and say, hey, so I'm going to go at this depth at this rate. It might get a little intense, but I want you to breathe. You know, your breath work is what's going to modulate your brain's perceived pain. Um, and so telling people that they have um, authority over the outcome of their treatment is helpful. And so... A lot of this massage therapy is educating, <laughs> just educating what massage therapy really is and, um, and the different modalities within massage, educating what the purpose is, like the difference of a Swedish massage versus like NST, which is my specialty skill set. And what's your opinion on, do you think pharmaceuticals need to be eradicated or do you think it needs to be, you know, kind of used as a kind of as a combination therapy? Uh, in a sense, combination. No doubt, you know, it has its purpose, but it's a tool. Just like massage therapy is a tool, it's an option. Um, but instead of having pharmacology as your first option, let's try something natural or something that's not going to change your mood, yeah. <laughs> you know, in a detrimental way or um, – that's going to change your body chemistry in a detrimental way, you know? Um, so yeah, pharmacology has its place. Yeah. But what I'm just trying to advocate is why don't you try massage therapy or try complementary medicine? We call it complementary medicine, like acupuncture, massage therapy, acupressure. Um, but it is the first medicine on the other side of the world. It was the original medicine, you know? Um, but, Granted, Western world, medicine, you know, our medicine was necessitated because of war, you know. So um, you can't do massage therapy out in the field. You, <laughs> you know, you needed people to get up and running. So, yes, pharmacology had its place. Nurses and doctors had its place. Um, because of the need at the time, pharmacology took over. It was functional at the time, you know. Um, wow, that's yeah, you just read a little bit about history of where things you know start from. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. How 
especially in America, the problem is, is things in war happen. There's like a, a carry on effect. Mm -hmm. And now it's, we might not be in war, but we're still going to have the same, do the same things that we did when we were in war. Mm -hmm. And pharmacology, I didn't know that it was, that's really where the, the, the tipping point mm -hmm. for it to be institutionalized. Mm -hmm. So, like, um, I was told uh, the modality, I think it's Shinjinjutsu, it is acupressure. It was a precursor before acupuncture. Mm -hmm. um, acupuncture with the needles was necessitated because, you know, you know, Japanese going to war. Like, you, you can have a practitioner working on one person at one time doing acupressure. Uh, acupressure. So the needles were uh, implemented because you could put needles in 50 different patients and get, you know, medicine to them um, or, you know, get them fixed up and back to war or what have you. Uh, and that was told to me by, uh, I think, Shin Jinjutsu practitioner. Wow. So just knowing how the evolution of where original medicine came from into how it's evolved to what we know it today, um, it's very, it's cool to learn the history, go back to the beginnings. I think it's incredible once we really understand that we don't have to just do things one certain way. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest thing that I feel that at least the Western idea is that it has to be done this way. And there you, you, you close off any idea or any option of, you know, far East medicine or middle East medicine or African medicine or South American medicine. It's just because you have a problem in your, your elbow doesn't mean that's the only place where you should treat your problem. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, you know, secondary tertiary effects. Yeah, like it could be arthritis, but arthritis is systemic, you know. What do you think veterans should be seeking out that at least from a healthcare and wellness standpoint, mm -hmm. what needs to get seeked out aside from obviously uh, massaging and neurosomatic treatment? Do you think that we need to find more of a access point where we can provide the information and people can... I just, um, educating. How would we educate them? Though? So, uh, gosh, if you are a veteran and you utilize VA services, um, I wish it could be promoted, you know, um, I'm not sure how much red tape is behind that, but a provider there like, Hey, you should seek out massage therapy. Um, and that's probably all they're going to say about it. But a, a veteran, should educate themselves, but like, okay, well, what is out there for me as massage therapy? There are key words you should probably know. Um, so don't go for a Swedish massage if your neck is jacked up or if you got a bum leg, you know, that's not going to do anything for you, but put you to sleep. <laughs> um, but uh, seek out the key words like neuromuscular or orthopedic massage therapy or, um, gosh, um, Look at the credentials of that practitioner and ask questions. Give them a call. Hey, can you, do you have the capacity to help alleviate this dysfunction that I have? You know, um, don't just do your own research, you know, um, but Seeking tell, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but just educating that, hey, veteran, just do this extra step <laughs> or, hey, VA facility, promote, you know, um, complementary modalities and i know they do because they have uh i can't think of it right now that um wellness clinic mm -hmm. um that has a whole bunch of modalities in it yes um but with covid i think some of those clinics got shut down at the time for now yeah. um 
but I think they are opening back up. I know uh, massage therapy had to get um, shut down for a little mm-hmm. bit there. Yeah, and I mean, for me personally, I take, I go to chiropractic at the VA. I go to acupuncture at the VA. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've gone through all that, you know, the, the mm-hmm. different, you know, steps that we have to take. The The biggest thing that I saw is people just want the VA to fix them. Mm-hmm. And... They don't want to listen to anybody else. So for people that are very closed minded, mm-hmm. you can't, you know, you can lead them to water, but you can't force them to drink. Right. Starts from within. <clears throat> Starts from within. Yeah. And well, there's sometimes a lot of layers to that, too. Yes. Yes. It's not sometimes they're not just stubborn people. Sometimes they're internal things. Belief systems, one of them. Belief you know. Um, but sometimes getting the energy to just get mm. up, you know, get up, get out, make the phone call. You know, I feel like a lot of those struggles is very common just to get up, get out, make a phone call. <laughs> um, I definitely, you know, identify with that. Yeah. I definitely don't deal with the lack of motivation mm-hmm. for, for better sense. It's because you, you kind of get told people tell you what to do. You, once you have a responsibility, you're like, okay, well, this is what I'm, you know, I've already dedicated this time and I now have a responsibility. I will take part of this and I will, you know, fulfill my responsibility. But if you don't have responsibility, it's a very hard thing to kind of motivate yourself to now take on this res- a new responsibility mm-hmm. that you don't even know yet. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing for me is once I started getting alternative medicines and secondary therapies, I found that I was able to find more energy to go out and do things. And, and Oh yeah. And I was at, once you can move your shoulder again, mm-hmm. it doesn't make you want to stop, you know, right. it makes you want to keep going. Some people just need a jump start. Some people mm. just need a battle buddy, a buddy to give them a call or, Hey, take your hand and walk you, drive you to the facility or, you know, have a buddy make that phone call. And once you get that rolling, that's all good. But sometimes that first step is a struggle. Um, and then, you know, let's say you're that person that gets it going and then you fall off the wagon and then you got to do it all back over again. And then this time around, you might be all alone and then you just absolutely don't, you're so far down, you don't have any energy to do it for yourself, you know? Um, but yeah, just start, just try. If it's a half a step, just do it. Yeah. You know? A bunch of half a steps end up, you look back and you're like, wow, I made it this far. Mm-hmm. And I, did, I was just looking at the ground the whole time. Mm-hmm. But sometimes a lot of people don't, uh, when it comes to chronic pain, some people have been living with their pain for so long, they don't even know what it feels like to feel good. So they don't even understand the value. Like, well, if I do this next step, I mean, how far is it going to take me? How much pain is it going to take away? And it's just easier to just sit there in your pain. Yeah. Because it's too much to just take that step forward to see that you could possibly get that pain taken away or reduced or what have you. Um, and like I said, there's lots of layers to that. Um, definitely not going to take away from other people's struggles and, and speak freely and say, yeah, you just, you just need to do X. Like, I get it. Sometimes just doing that one thing, it's not going to happen for two, five, ten years. Yeah. You know? And... For me, I, when I worked in a clinic, the goal for people is to give them a realistic expectation. Mm-hmm. A lot of people go into therapy and 
you know, doctor's offices with unrealistic expectations. Like the goal is to have more better days. Mm-hmm. That's sure. the goal. Yeah. Doesn't mean you're 100% better. That's not what it means. It means that you have less bad days, mm-hmm. which means that you can function on a positive frequency instead of on a negative frequency. Mm-hmm. And people that all, if you imagine having seven bad days in a row and then you go back and you have seven more bad days in mm-hmm. a row, you, you're not, you're not mentally sane. Mm-hmm. Your body is now controlling your brain and you don't, you, you can't function properly. You can't think properly. You don't know anything. You're hypersensitive to everything around you. Mm-hmm. And when you take it in and you're like, Oh my God, well, this is a, this is my new norm. This is my reality. I'm just going to hate everything. And I hate everyone. And that's what happens. You're pissed off <laughs> and all I'm the laughing time. laughing because I've experienced that. And it's a thing. It is. You know? And sometimes and it sucks because if you don't have people around you to pull you out of it, you're in it on your own. Yes. And then you got to do it your damn self. Get yourself out of that hole. That's so much fun. It's <laughs> and, and The worst part is when you're in the hole, you don't see a light. There are There is no lights. Mm-mm. You're like, okay, I can... There's a 360 degrees, you know, I don't know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. All I know is that this hurts. Mm-hmm. This pisses me off. I'm depressed. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, having anxiety. I'm having PTSD relapses. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it's a culmination of like a whole bunch of different things. But people don't understand, like, you just take a baby step. Mm-hmm. That's all you have to do. Mm-hmm. You don't have to fix the entire problem right now. Mm-hmm. You take a baby step, your problem's still there. Everything's, you know, every, nothing has gotten better. But then if you take another one and another one, and then maybe you might link up with somebody. Right. And that link up might be the whole, you know, the new paradigm or the, mm-hmm. the shift in your life. And now you're like, oh, my God, like I would have never made it if I didn't, you know, just. Right. You know, do that little little seeking and you shall finding. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with this, I would love to for you to kind of just give like an outreach to obviously the audience, but anyone out there, if you were going to join the military, what should they be expecting and what benefits or, you know, yeah, you know, traumas that come with it. But, sure. but what, what do you think that would be a beneficial thing to pass on to the next generation of military potential military service members? Yeah. Um, I've gone to like, three or four trade schools. So I'm going to relate it to that. You know, it's a trade school. Just think of it going in the military is a trade school. And you, depending on your branch, you can sign up for two years, three years, four years or six years, you know? Um, so it's nothing from my perspective. I grew up in it. So it's not scary. It's a job. I mean, you get a civilian job, you go, on you know your white collar professional job you go to your job and someone comes up there with a machine gun and shoots up everybody like, it's pretty dangerous <laughs> you know i mean it's not it's not common you know but um for the most part when you're stateside or not in war it is a safe occupation <laughs> with great benefits and when i say benefits i'm not just talking about uh, monetary value. I'm talking about experience. Um, a TDY, you know, hey, go have a temporary job in Hawaii for three weeks because you have to take this training, you know, 
or go do some field training. Okay, field training is not scary. Um, you're not going to do it as a civilian unless you're a, you know, outdoorsy person or something doing um, kids camps and whatnot, <laughs> you know, but it's not scary. So that's all I can say. I think of it as a trade school. You're going to learn your skill. A lot of these skills turn into certifications, if not a license um, that you can carry with you when you depart the military. Um, and the foundation that is built when you join, um, if you're a young person, it's a great foundation. It can be. Um, and if you're older, if you're joining in your 30s, it's another. It's just another skill set, you know. Um, and it just helps evolve you as a human being. You have a different perspective on life. And we all need different perspective. Just go on the other side of the world and come back. You... I would love for p more people. I wish we could do that in high school. Um, aside from, you know, whatever your language is, you, you speak Spanish for two years, now you're going to go to Spain. No, I'm talking about, like, as a culture in the, in the West, you know, at whatever grade, we all travel abroad to a country and go sit down with, um, you know, uh, indigenous tribes or what have you. A little Should, bit of immersion. Yes, we need more other... <laughs> worldly immersions for our young people, to be honest. And if you are from the country, rural area like myself, look here. This is, you can see me. I'm brown. <laughs> I was one of like six people in my high school. The first Spanish person I met was after the military. I was, I was at school. <laughs> he was Caucasian looking. I come around the corner and he's like, boo speaking Spanish really fast and I was like I was like Alex I was like I didn't know you spoke Spanish he was like yeah my name's Alejandro <laughs> well I didn't call him that it was Alex right so I'm like look if you're from the country rural area you've never seen the world you don't see other colors <laughs> join it's a great experience um and um you know you're obligated to whatever you sign up for your contract I mean, while I have you here, I definitely want to take advantage of it. Um, for the females that are looking into joining the military, mm -hmm. um, obviously I have a Marine Corps perspective. Mm -hmm. And my perspective was that females got, you know, very short end of the stick mm -hmm. a lot of the time. What would you be telling them? And kind of what was your, what, what was your, basing it off of your experience? Like, what was that like being a female in the military? Um, okay, so I'm Air Force. That's my background. Um, my experience, or what I'm going to say, is going to be much different than any other core because every core has their own experience and different exposures. You know, um, so I would say that my career is relatively mild um, in terms of being a female. I didn't really have any pushback anywhere. Um, I just would say one time I probably should have ranked up. But at the time, my mental wellness was in the way. So they said, oh, no, you're not fit to get this rank at the time. I was so in my head, PTSD bad. And I, I was not well enough to advocate for myself that that unit was in the wrong. I should have got I should have got E6 at that point. And so um, but I wasn't in my right mind. And so I let that opportunity pass. But. Other than that, I would say my career has been pretty mild. I've had a great experience. Sure, there was some supervisors that, you know, 
we rubbed each other the wrong way, misunderstood each other. It felt like they were out to get me or what have you. But I had a lot of good people. I had a lot of good leadership around me. And I was mostly professional. <laughs> you know, so you keep that stance. And I would have to say that things will work out fine. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, there are stories where um, it's not, it doesn't happen that way for some females. Um, but I'm low key. I don't do much. <laughs> so I, you know, I don't, I didn't get myself in trouble. You know, I wasn't outspoken. Um, and that's my personal experience, you know, so I had a good career. I had a mild career, um, in terms of being a female. Um, but I would say it, you know, there was that picture I sent you. I was the only female in the picture of 20 men. So yeah, you're probably going to be outnumbered. <laughs> Um, but you are a service member wearing the same uniform as your fellow males. And sure, there's going to be stigmas of how you look, what color your hair is, and maybe where you're from, and things like that. But you know what? We're all supposed to be professional in uniform, and that would be considered unprofessional. And so for young people thinking about joining the military, there are systems in place that you can speak up and say that things are um, being inappropriate inappropriate towards you, you know, uh, EO, Equal Opportunity Office, things like that. Know uh, what's available to you so you can protect yourself. Um, people, uh, leadership you can call. Some people don't know their line of leadership, that they have rights. I'm like, yeah, you have rights. <laughs> like, I'm Air Force. We knew our rights. I would talk to a fellow Marine or Army. They were like, you can call them? They do things for you? <laughs> yeah. Like, Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Cause we obviously they tell you, but it's like a glance over mm -hmm. and it's like, well, you have these rights, but we're going to do this, 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 yeah, this, this, yeah. this. It's like, Oh, Oh, we're doing this. Okay. I f totally forgot about my rights. Yeah. You, I lost you at, you know, hello. <laughs> right. <laughs> A right. Not claimed. Ceases yeah. To exist. yeah. It's not, it's, it never existed. Right. And the, uh, and I would also like if you could, just kind of give the the audience just when you were dealing with your friends, how did you help them cope with their situations? Like if you knew somebody that was that had gone through something, what mm -hmm. would you tell that person to help them get through that situation? Oh, gosh, it's like a switch in my brain. It's like I might be struggling myself, but I see a fellow and they're just down and out. It might be their first time. It might be their first rodeo. I'm like. Let me let me tell you a thing or two. Um, you're gonna be okay. You know, in that instance, for the most part, any, anyone that I engaged with was eventually going to be okay. Um, I um, did not experience any, you know, suicides or anything like that personally. Um, so, but yeah, it was almost like I was able to turn my own issues off and help this other individual, whether they were a peer or they were subordinate or just someone lower ranking than myself. Um, and I. I appreciate objectivity, so that's usually how I approach things. You know, I would side with them, like, yeah, leadership is this and that. Like, yeah, they're jerks, whatever. But, I mean, keep it professional. It's a team. It's one fight, you know. Um, get them back um, up, you know, standing on their own two feet. You know, it's – you're not – you don't want to join them. You, you, you want to empathize with them um, and, you know, whatever that looks like empathize but at the end of the story or at the end of the day get them back functioning back to duty you know 
Um, so yeah, did I answer yeah, that? Absolutely. Get them back in the fight. Yep. That's what I, that's what I heard. Um, saddle up. Mm-hmm. So what things do you have going on right now? Are you kind of getting, you have your, your, your massage, mm-hmm. but where, where are you located? What do you do? Yeah. So I, you know, massage therapist since 2013, 14, did that for a few years, and then I specialized in 2019 to be a neurosomatic therapist. So now I have a skill set um, that puts me above, you know, my fellow therapist. And although I was a great regular massage therapist, 500-hour, you know, class yeah. massage therapist, I was really good. But um, I did not like that I couldn't get all of my people out of pain. And I was frustrated. And like, I'm working on your neck and shoulder for the third time, fifth time. And they would keep coming back. And they're like, yeah, but you make it feel better. I'm like, but I want it to go away. And so my medic brain, you know, I need to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> I need to fix it one time. I don't want to see this again. <laughs> and um, so I ended up specializing in 2019 neurosomatic therapy out in Clearwater, Florida. Um, uh, structural therapy, um, structural base, the... They prioritize your C-spine, C1, C2, um, and also look for a lower limb length inequality, as in like a short leg. Um, I actually have a short femur. It's by six millimeters. And so um, didn't know that until I went there. That's probably where my uh, herniations in my back come from. (laughs) Um, And the thing is, when it comes to chronic pain, a lot of young people can get away with it. They can slide through years and just be like, ah, it's, it's nagging, it's there, it's fine. Um, but roughly around 25 and after, chronic pain is going to set in and it's not going to go away until you seek out the, the correct type of therapy for it. Um, so I specialize with that skill set. Currently, I don't really practice NST the way it was taught to me, but I have the skill set. So if someone shows up where I work and says, hey, I have a neck and shoulder problem, I'm going to change their life. They're thinking they're coming in here, you know, in a spa and having a traditional massage therapy appointment. And then I blow their mind and, you know, get rid of their pain. And they're just left in awe. Um, I currently work in downtown Chicago at um, Lifetime at One Chicago. It's the flagship company store. And they just opened in January. Um, So far, so good. It's a corporate environment. And, you know, I left the military. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for a reason and uh but it's it's fine i'll be okay um uh, i have a lot of freedom there um so the menu is not so drastic where i have to perform menu items as so um it's either a custom massage or a cbd massage honestly and so when it comes to custom that i have a, a lot of authority with talking to my guests and say hey what would you like to work on today and i give them my spiel i do my little protocol send them on their way happy <laughs> Wow, so many people can benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, when people go to, you know, a therapist, they, they kind of are crossing their fingers that they get a good one. Absolutely. And everybody that, you know, kind of is your patient yeah. really hits a home run. They do. It, look, I'm a consumer as well. Like, it's, I'm like, where can I find one of me? <laughs> you know, like, look, I, you know, I've gone and I get a massage. And I'm like, hey, can you work my glutes? Because, you know, glute work is a you know, a good indicator and a good place to work. Uh, if you have low back pain, it just is the fascial line, you know? Um, and I was hot, sorely disappointed. And it was like, I, 
I knew what I was getting myself into, but I was just hoping. I was like, please get rid of my back pain. Just work my glutes. And it was just glides. And I'm like, that's not how you work glutes. <laughs> so I get it. It is hard. And um, again, educating. And we do need more specialized uh, practitioners out there and the promotion of what we do. Um, and, you know, it's all in the language of how we promote whatever modality you practice in and promote to not just injuries. Some people can like, ah, well, I wasn't, I wasn't an athlete. I don't have that. I just, it's just a little pain, you know, but you know, um, every injury is an injury. Yep. Shoulder pain, shoulder pain. (laughs) Yeah. Injury is an injury. Mm -hmm. So, well, I just, I, I want to start, you know, getting to the close, but I would love for you to, if you could change one thing about society, what would be the one thing you would change about society? So you should have asked me this in the email 10 days ago. Well, I like to surprise you. Yeah. Um, awareness, education. What do you That's think? A, what Daniel think say? Immersion. Immersion. Get our young people moving away from where they they grew up. Yes. You know? I'm telling you, when you're just pigeonholed to where you're from, and the, that in itself is a culture, and you grow up replicating your elders, and you're perpetuating that culture, which becomes, you know, society. Um, so if people want to see change, you know, step away from what you've ever known. Step away from social norms. You know, educate yourself. We have Google on our phone. We have free education. You have YouTube. You know, um, be okay that you don't have to follow the rules or what society says, um, what you need to do at whatever age you're at. You know, oh, you're 22. You haven't done this. You're supposed to be getting married. 24. What are you doing with yourself? You know, so my thing, if I was to change uh, our society is uh, get to the young people, yeah. get them moving away from what they know, because this is a big world, you know, and and they are walking away from school if they even get to graduate, um, not knowing a lot um, in terms of the world and how the world operates. So, and that's a shame. That's a really shame. And, you know, to even piggyback off of that, that's what, generational trauma is Mm -hmm. is you stay in the same place and everything gets passed down onto you obviously you have no choice when you're a child Mm -hmm. but the longer you stay there the more trauma that you can start to absorb yep and you know you need everybody needs to find their own way everybody needs to find their own path somebody could tell you every step of the way but what they don't what people don't understand is if you get told every step of your life that needs to happen and you do it Mm -hmm. That's what a midlife crisis is because you don't know how to think for yourself because somebody's told you how to do it, whether it's a, a, a helicopter mom or a parent, or if you have somebody who's, you know, your, their opinion matters so much to you. You listen to everything they say. Mm-hmm. Well, now you're 50 years old and you're like, what am I supposed to do? I can't figure this out. And you feel like you're 50 years old or 40 years old, 30 years old, that you should have this figured out already. Right. And then it causes like that, the, the downhill spiral effect. Well, we're full of labels as well. Oh, yes. So God forbid you reach an age and now you're that label. 
<laughs> so we get caught up in labels too. You know, throw away the labels. Who cares if you're a label? Yeah. Just like, why does that matter? Um, but yeah, our society does things to us to keep us where we're at. Uh, I just want to tell people, don't be afraid to do something different for yourself. You know, change your family lineage. Um, you know, and so just to touch back on what I just said, family lineage. Um, when my massage therapy is so easy for me, come to find out it was after I basically had an identity crisis in 2017. My aunt told me, you know, you come from this line. And she says, your great grandmother was a village healer. And um, one of her daughter, daughters was as well. And so that knowing that information pulled me out of my the depths of my despair back in 2017. And I was like, all right, sticking with massage therapy. Um, as much as you wanted to run from it. Yeah, I tried to be a nurse, went to nursing school. I'm like, oh, my God. It was, it was your calling. <laughs> it was. And I'm so happy doing it. it wow. It's so easy for me to do it. And I love it. You know, um, so yeah, definitely for young people, really make an effort to find out what you enjoy. You don't have to suffer <laughs> through your 20s um, or your 30s and then um, figure out in your late 30s that you like a thing. Like, oh, I should have did that instead. I should not listen to people I knew that said that I needed to do this schooling or this uh, occupation, what have you. I think people don't, don't understand 30 is so young. 30 is really young. You can actually have a whole new life yeah. at 30 and mm -hmm. it's still okay. Mm -hmm. Because there's people that are 60, they're like, man, I wish I would have done this in my life. Mm -hmm. 30, you're halfway there. You can mm -hmm. still have a whole 20-year career with 10 years to spare. Yeah. Some might even argue just only a third of the way there. Yeah, you're a third of the way there. Well, I mean, even if you're 60, exactly. with this day and age, you potentially could live another 30 years. 120, <laughs> you know, or even longer. Yeah. Like, there's you people get impatient mm -hmm. and the instant gratification is what we are living in right now and if you can just be patient and say 30 is when you're 20 you think 30s old when you're 30 you think 40s old mm -hmm. when you're 40 you think 50s old look at how many different times you thought something was old yeah and once you reach that milestone you realize that you it's really not that old mm -hmm. you're the next one's the old one and then while you were making all those excuses, a whole decade passed by. Exactly. <laughs> that's a shame. And you miss out. And that's yep. the problem is you miss out by throwing your hands up and saying, oh, it's just too late for me. Mm -hmm. If you can, you know, ground yourself and be like, nope, we'll make it happen. Then we can, you know, do it from there. So uh, I know we've been talking for a long time, but I'm so grateful that you were able to stop by and, um, you know, talk with us and everything you're doing. I think it's so impactful to everyone that is graced by your presence. Uh, just being able to know that when people come and see you, that you can, you, you can, you know, leave that encounter knowing that you made a difference. Yes. And it's, it's very special because people can go their whole life wanting, wanting to make a difference in other people's lives. Mm -hmm. And you do it on a daily basis, mm -hmm. multiple times a day. Yeah. And I just want to say thank you for that service to uh the community thank you for that service to americans thank you for that service to veterans and being able to be you know a, a spotlight to what can happen if you do stay persistent and you do become a 
resilient person and you Mm -hmm. don't get affected by the moment. And even in your darkest times, you were still squared away on the outside Mm -hmm. and your composure and, you know, it's That's just, tricky, though. It's very tricky. That look of composure gets you in trouble because then people look at you like, oh, you're, you're fine. fine. You're fine. That has gotten me in a lot of trouble while I'm screaming. Like, I need help. Help. The dog burning in the house. <laughs> Everything's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um. So that appearance has gotten me it's, not it's enough help. So uh, that's been the struggle in itself. Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of military members that have that demeanor mm-hmm. that we're just closed off. We don't, we're emotionless. We're mm-hmm. not high in the high, low and the lows, but we're crying inside. Mm-hmm. We're screaming inside. Yeah. And, you know, we're a testament. We're speaking on it. This is how we felt personally. And we felt like we had no option. So we had to overcome it ourselves. But we want to get the information out there. There are options out there for people. Yeah. You just have to go. Find the keywords mm-hmm. and seek it. Right. Um, so I want to say thank you so much. This has been an incredible, incredible episode, and I'm I'm deeply grateful to you. Thank you. Um, thank you for service. Thank you. Thank you. It was an honor. <laughs> and for the audience out there, I want everybody to know that America is the greatest country in the world. And the only way you will appreciate it is if you go to other countries and you see what they have to overcome just to live with your accommodations. Clean water, hot water, electricity when you want it. The ability to not smell, you know, waste outside. These are all things that we take for granted. And I want us to really start understanding that service members have had to view these things, experience it, live it, fight in it, and then come back and be treated as if they never went through those things. And it's a whole recovery process. And I want everyone to know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel as long as you just keep taking your baby steps. So this is Core Values. And... We'll see you next time.